The animal companion is a critical character in many coming-of-age adventure stories. Argos in The Odyssey, the cricket in Pinocchio, Toothless in How to Train Your Dragon. In fact, there's a whole subset of adventure stories that center on the animal. White Fang, Call of the Wild, Black Beauty, Spirit. The animal companion reveals to us something important about the hero, something the hero cannot otherwise tell us or show us. Uh, it is now 10 to 2, and I am in Boulder, Utah. This is Matt Parker in 2003, 23 years old. He kept an audio journal for a brief time during his horseback journey. I woke up around 7, which is when I normally wake up. Smokey always wakes me up with the sun. He starts whinnying to me, and I yell out to him, saying, yeah, I'll be up, you know. So he knows I'm coming. It's only the 4th right now of, of September, and my parents are meeting me on the 15th. So I'm taking a day just to chill. This is Ride of Passage. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Chapter 7, Horseman. A month before his audio diary, in early August, Matt and Smokey were recouping on a ranch in Baker, Nevada. Matt from the rigors of the desert state and a surly hospitality at Major's Station, and Smokey from a scrape he'd had with a rusty car in a paddock at an old gold mine. Matt used the time in Baker to brush up as a ranch hand. Separating cows and calves, repairing fences, riding fence lines, you know, just mending fences and stuff. It's just a lot of real, honest cowboy work. And I loved it. You know, I, I finally had given Smokey three weeks' worth of rest. I'd been staring at the Wawa Desert, you know, this whole time, watching these gorgeous storms roll in, you know, across the, across the salt. It was really kind of amazing to, to watch. The Wawa Desert, a salt flat that lay to the east, would be Matt and Smokey's next test together. Blinding white and barren, devoid of water and life, all of it unavoidable. The good people of the Baker Ranch told him about a couple of wells he could find as he made his way into Utah. Matt said his goodbyes. There was a big chunk of time east of Baker, Nevada, and I lost my sunglasses. I remember walking mile after mile after mile, and I would, you know, Smokey and I, I'd be on his back, and, and it looked like something out of a movie. You know, just this blinding salt flat. Some portions of the desert I just had to bear down and just get through as fast as possible because that was definitely the most remote I had been on the on the trip. I would go for days, you know, or a week without seeing somebody sometimes. But across that one stretch, I knew that the likelihood of of salvation was pretty remote. It is barren. That's where the sagebrush is 2 inches tall. I mean, it's there's nothing out there. No shade. No, not even close. But that was a that was a rough that was a rough stretch. I think within three days, I think I did the ride within three days, maybe four tops. And it still did long-term damage to my eyes. 
I mean, even even now, I have these funny little puckers on the inside of my of the whites of my eyes near near the bridge of my nose that were as a direct result of UV damage. As Matt and Smokey left the Wawa salt flat with these new scars of the journey, they wound their way up into a gleaming dolomite mountain known as Crystal Peak, there greeted by a cache of Mojave green rattlesnakes in the rugged terrain. They were greeted in the small town of Milford by a family from the Church of Latter-day Saints. They were greeted in the mountain range beyond by the first deciduous forest they'd seen in months. It felt good enough to document with a pressed leaf inside Matt's journal. And there were other flashes of joy along the trail. Mustangs halting in the distance, zebra bars entwining their hind legs and black stripes painted down their backs by God. These wild cousins of Smokey. Seeing Mustangs in in Nevada and Utah was a very common occurrence. They never really bugged me. I kind of liked seeing them. You know, you'd just see them off in the distance or they'd come around and, you know, but they never got very close. And did Smokey react to all of them when he would see them? Well, if he saw them, yeah, he would whinny at them, mm-hmm. you know, and they, w- they would make some noise too. Uh, and they would just sort of, sometimes they would just sort of look, you know, they're probably talking to each other and, you know. Different horse, languages. Horse telepathy, <laughs> like, what, what's that thing on your back, you know, sucker. Yeah, right. Um, so they were, uh, they would always win at each other, but, you know, that was, that was the extent of it. They never tried to fight or anything like that. They were just, like, telling each other their names. Or, like, yeah, probably. Like, I'm Bill. Other. What's your name? <laughs> he calls me Smokey. Yeah, but really, but, my name's Edgar. Yeah, it's George, know? actually. This gaunt young man, weathered by the desert, was heading east. East through Beaver, where he bought a rifle, on the recommendation of Oz Wickman, who said Matt wouldn't hit the broadside of a barn with his revolver. East through Circleville, and the childhood home of another Parker, Robert Leroy Parker, better known as Butch Cassidy. And east through to Anemone, where a dude ranch and a mercantile composed the town. I mean, Anemone is a tiny little town. I ended up camping out in the back, and, and I, I think somebody dropped off a bale of hay for me. And uh, I stayed out there. And then one day, um, they had told me while I was staying there about Oli. My name is Oli Lindgren. It's a Norwegian name. I'm a guide, an outfitter, horse trainer. He was well-known in the area as sort of like the better horsemen, horse traders, horse trainers. If I were to describe myself in the way I would like to see myself, it would be probably gardener, but nobody seems to get very excited about that. But everyone, if you were to ask someone on the street in the town that I live closest to, they'd say, oh, only the horse trainer. That's what they'd say I do. And he drove up one time and he basically sort of interviewed me. You know, he wanted to know what I was doing. He had seen me on the road when I was riding into Anemone. On my way into town, a man turned around in his blue expedition, and he introduced himself as Ole Lindgren. And Ole, he was a horse trainer by trade. I was driving along after church on a Sunday. I was in my suit in a periwinkle Ford Explorer with a couple of my kids 
and my wife. And I looked uh, not far from the rock and R along the side of the road, and I saw a horseman traveling along. And being a horseman, you know, I'm a sixth generation. My kids are seventh generation horse people on the same ranch. And so horses probably catch our eye quicker than people. But I noticed this horse that was just putting one foot in front of the other and taking really long steps. And I thought, that's kind of a gated horse. I saw he'd really been a long way. I thought, well, that's strange. I mean, it's just like, what the heck? <laughs> you know, most of the guys that are on a horse in my community have a rope and they're trailing cattle. He had all these bags, all this stuff. And I, so I started breaking down his gear going, holy crow, that's a lot of stuff on a horse. So I pulled over and approached him and said, hey, that horse looks like it could use a break and some feed and maybe you need a rest. If you feel like it, inquire at the Merc down there and they'll give you directions up to my place. And uh, you're welcome to put your horse there up and, you know, give him a few days of rest and feed and, and whatever. Ultimately, I rode Smokey down to his house, which is outside of town about seven miles. And as I left the mercantile, I, uh, I helped herd some sheep down the middle of, the, of Route 22. So that was pretty neat. We opened our home to him, you know, rather completely. I mean, I hooked him up with dates with girls in town or tried to. Uh, I, uh, you know, took his horse, put it up, fed it just anything I could do to help him along the way and I found every every part of it was reciprocated Matt had a good I would say progressive soul you, you can tell when people are searchers and they're making progress and when they're searchers and they're just looking for a joint and a place to smoke he was uh, clearly and quickly recognizable as somebody who was trying to reach beyond his comfort zone. When Ole invited me down to stay with he and Kenda and their kids, um, I was exposed to somebody whose life it was to breed, train, sell, trade horses. At this point, I'd been on the journey, California, Nevada, this is now central Utah. I'd been on the, on the journey for, you know, four months and just, I'd gotten very comfortable in the saddle. I'd gotten very comfortable, you know, with Smokey to a degree, but I still knew that I had blind spots. You know, I had some gaps and I, I wasn't necessarily hiding those blind spots or gaps in my understanding from people I met because what I was doing was obviously working and I was slowly getting east and, and, you know, and I'd been able to weather, you know, small accidents like the mountain lion and things like that. You know, I'd, I'd kind of weathered those, um, those periods, but in terms of being a, a very good horseman and understanding horses in general or what motivated them or how they interpreted the world, their decision-making process, you know, I, I, that was still very unknown to me. And so Matt Parker and Oli Lindgren began a journey together. 
one centered around horsemanship. The art and skill of reading a horse and responding rather than telling a horse how to think and be. My position with him wasn't really one to break him down. It's not like he was a student or a client. Uh, my position was, how can I help him uh, get a little more efficient at, at getting across the country? Once he explained he was trying to go clear across the country, I said, well, you know, uh, that was pretty much what everybody did for a couple of centuries. There are some things that would really, you know, save you, like uh, offering him a pack animal was one of them. But uh, in my assessment of where Matt was when he got here, it wasn't it wasn't to go, hey, you're doing it wrong. It was to say, um, hey, there's some things you could do righter. So he just worked with me. I mean, we, we would, we would ride out a lot together. Um, he would watch me and, and sort of comment on, on ways that I could improve. And he would just sort of teach me about the mountains and, and, you know, sort of what it was like living out there, uh, what his faith was like, you know, his faith was very deep. Um, and it, it was kind of like, a you know, master and apprentice in a sense, like he was kind of like an older brother to me. At the time he was 33 and I was 23. Like we both felt as though we were meant to meet. Like we, it felt very sort of fortuitous that we met. And he was sort of a pivot point around how the, how the, the journey evolved. The trust between the two young men grew quickly. A couple weeks into Matt's stay, Ole had business in Salt Lake City and asked Matt if he'd watch the ranch while he was gone. And he said, hey, can you, you know, feed and water the animals, look after the place? And, and they were gone for a long weekend. I got a, a fairly frantic call from Ole. And he said, hey, I, I need you to go to this property that's, you know, a few miles away. And he said, there's been an accident with a horse there. And I need you to take the horse and bring it down to the property and tend to it. And I drove up there real fast, and there was this otherwise beautiful white horse, very bloody, messed up looking uh, horse that was sort of in a, in a paddock off by itself. And the stallion and the other horses had ganged up and kicked him through a barbed wire fence. I'd kicked him until he ran into a barbed wire fence and tore up his brisket really, really badly. I mean, he, it, the tops of his front legs was just, it looked like he'd just been like lashed like crazy. And so I was able to gather him up and put him in the trailer and bring him back to Ole's. And then I started, you know, started doctoring him, you know, lots of salves, lots of disinfectant. Um, I think Ole had some, you know, some intramuscular antibiotic. I gave him a couple shots in his neck. Once Matt got the white horse cleaned up, he thought, there's something special about this one. When Ole got back to town, he told Matt that he agreed. This was an Appaloosa bred to be smart, strong-willed, and agile by the Nez Perce over hundreds, if not thousands, of years. One of the best endurance breeds in the world. Generally smaller and more muscled than a tall, lanky horse like, say, Smokey. A horse that really wasn't physically built for the long ride. See, he made, he made that selection based on 
you know, the horse he got along with him, he thought because he was an American racking horse that that equals greater distance. And I kind of explained to him when he got here that all horses that are gated move in what they call a disjoint movement, which means the back end moves independent of the front end. And to do that, the loin muscle becomes a really big uh, player. Oli says it's kind of like a person going to the gym, picking up a barbell and doing bicep curls. And they just are curling and curling until the bicep is fatigued. But then they keep curling and curling until their form is off and their back is doing some of the work. And then their core and leg muscles start getting involved and it's just sloppy. And so for long distance riding, once that lane muscle's gone, they turn into kind of a camel because other muscles have to take the job that the loin muscle is failing it. So when I said, when I first approached him, this horse is just taking really big camely steps and they're just going so slow. I was like, I know exactly what's going on there. It became kind of evident, you know, that, that I should consider a new mount, like I should consider a different animal. So when he got up to the house, I was a little tentative actually to approach it because they don't often want to hear that their horse that they love might not be the horse for the job. Uh, a racking horse for that trip, uh, gosh, that's like asking Michael Jackson to be your defensive guard. He's good at singing. He might not stop a 300-pound aggressor. So uh, <laughs> he said, so what would you suggest? The quickest and easiest solution to keep Smokey healthy and on the trail was to get the weight off of his back. And... Uh, they said, you should get a pack mule. Like, you're going to be be much easier for you and the horse. You can have a pack mule. You can you can put more grain in the panniards, and you can, you know, it'll make your journey over the Rockies that much easier. You know, you should do it. But Matt knew very little about mules, other than they were big and smart. You know, a mule can be very calculating, very unforgiving. There's stories that I heard about mules, you know, that would wait a year to kick your teeth out. Like if you hurt them, <laughs> you know, they'd wait till they could line up the crosshairs on you just right, you know, to make you remember what you'd done to piss them off <laughs> months previously. Matt needed to get back to the American Discovery Trail soon. His parents were planning to meet him in a couple weeks at Height Marina on the north end of Lake Powell, 150 miles away, zigzagging through mountain passes and over rivers, large and small. Ole found Matt a tough but fair mule named Danny. Danny was nice, but he bonded with Smokey, and you couldn't separate him. Like, and so, we, you know, we just put him in the same pen together, and the two of them got along great. And when I rode out, you know, Danny's like right there behind, you know, like, like a happy chappy, you know, just ready to go. <laughs> So um, I ended up leaving Ole's with with Danny the mule, packing out with Danny and with, with Smokey. With a heavy heart, a very heavy heart, I hugged Ole goodbye and headed on down the trail. Got lost numerous times because the trail was all backwards and wacky. Did you find learning how to ride and lead at the same time to be challenging? Yeah. It is challenging. 
Yeah, it was challenging, and but I mean, like uh, necessity is the mother of invention. It's around this time in Matt's audio journals that you can hear something. A frustration, a malaise, a lonesomeness. Maybe all of that. Uh, All I know is I crossed, either I crossed the West Fork twice, maybe even three times. I know I crossed it twice. And I crossed another river before that, maybe, or maybe I crossed the West Fork three times. I don't know. Man, I've gotten lost so many times on this trip, and I don't know if it's because of my own idiocy or if it's because of bad trails. But uh, really, I mean, it's uh, it was a screw job trying to find my way around that place. I got lost so many times, I was just pissed. Eventually, I ended up having to ford the Green River, and I had to cross it, you know, swimming next to Smokey. You know, and Danny just came swimming along and I just said, forget it, Danny, you're on your own. And he just decided to eventually get in the water himself. But, but I knew that I was going to have to ford a fairly large river at the Northern side of Lake Powell, just to, just to get to the Eastern side of Lake Powell to height Marina. And I'd been working my, you know, working up to that point, knowing that I was going to have to ford that river and, and Smokey and I, you know, swam across it, you know, sure enough. I mean, at that point I was, my parents had come out to visit and they weren't necessarily thinking about like picking me up and me going back. And, and I just was like burnt out. Like I, at that point, I just was like, I, I, you know, I've, it was, the trip was longer, harder, hotter than I had anticipated. And I just needed a little bit of time for a break. And I think it was just too hard for me to refuse seeing my folks there. In the homey confines of an RV by the side of Lake Powell, Bill and Katie Parker asked their son if he wanted to go home. It was mid-September. Snow would be coming to the mountains soon, making them impassable. At that point, I think I just, I got too close to, I guess, civility and, and knowing that I had the opportunity to get a free ride home. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to get over the Rockies. I'd already missed my window, which was a, a crucial window. So I knew that there was just no way that I was going to, to be able to get finished with the whole trip. I mean, it just, it was, it was just, you know, too tall a mountain to climb, literally and figuratively. And so I, and I said, yeah, you know, like I've thought it over and let me call Oli and I'll board the horses there over the winter. Matt placed a rock where he'd leave the trail, vowing to start again his second riding season at that very spot outside of Moab, Utah. Matt and his dad trailered Smokey and Danny back to Oli's ranch. Matt said his goodbye for now to this pal who had endured with him about 900 miles of trail. The journey had gained Matt and Smokey experience and fatigue in equal measure, slowly at first and then all at once. The Parkers turned their truck toward Michigan and headed home. And it wasn't until I had gotten home, and it was right around Christmas, and Oli called me and he said, hey, there's a woman and she wants to buy Smokey. 
came down and looked at him. She was looking at a different horse. She saw him and fell in love with him, and she lives, uh, she lived up near Provo. And then, you know, got his assurance that the woman that wanted to buy him was a very nice woman and would take good care of him. And so I thought about it over Christmas, and I said, give me some time. You know, I need to think about it. And then eventually called him and said, okay. He and I had a very special bond, you know. It was, it's unlike the bond that I've had with any animal in a lot of ways, and, and even stronger in many ways than the bond I had with, with you know, some people in my life. Um, he was just the, the kindest animal, you know. He just didn't have a mean bone in his body. Um, so when I said goodbye to him at Oli's place, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, I don't want to do anything to hurt him. I don't want his life to be more difficult than it already is for any, any horse, generally speaking. And, you know, my, my last sight of Smokey was him sitting in the round pen with Danny because the two of them had bonded quite a bit. But it's, it's hard to say that I felt sad because sadness wasn't really an emotion that came into me knowing that he had the opportunity for a, a loving, longer, better life. It's kind of hard to feel sad about that. But in the back of my mind, I mean, like, he was my first horse ever. You know, and the journey that he and I had been on, you know, it's, it's sort of irreplaceable. You can't, you can't ever change that. And so I, I think about him even to this day. I mean, I think about him at least once a month, you know, going, I wonder how he's doing. The animal companion often does not complete the journey with the hero. These partners are but glancing blows upon the story, fleeting and impactful, sometimes with great devastation, but always leaving their mark. And I got the mule and Smokey, um, and uh, they're both tied to a tree. The mule, mules kind of graft onto horses. They have like this inferiority complex. You know, the mule would be very unhappy if I moved him from Smokey, although the mule may not like me too much. So, I mean, there's pros and cons. You just have to learn to take the cons with the pros. But uh, for now, I'm going to try and get some sleep and hope that the night passes without any incident. Um, I pray that it does. Okay, well, signing off. On the next ride of passage, Matt begins his second riding season with a new horse. I just saw so much promise in him, this magnificent stallion with one white hoof, like a Ferrari. It's like somebody, you know, handing you the keys to a supercar. But it didn't work out, and didn't work out in spectacular fashion. That's next time on Ride of Passage. Special thanks to podcast editor Rachel Ishikawa. The Ride of Passage theme was written and recorded by Bob Scon. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>